Welcome to LTN Radio, and tonight we've got a special from LTN Con 2020. Cecilia Rose, the head of the Otaku Outreach from Saddleback Church in California, is bringing us a collection of special keynotes about the otaku. Who are they? The mental health crisis around them, and how to reach them for Jesus. Hello, my name is Cecilia, and I am the founder of Jesus Otaku, an anime outreach ministry out of Saddleback Church in Southern California. Thank you so much to Love Thy Nerd for giving me the opportunity to talk to you all about how to be the love of Jesus to the anime otaku community. So, who are the otaku? What are the common hurts in this community? What is it that attracts people to the anime fandom? During this panel, we'll be discussing how the answers to these questions can help inform our outreach approach in the anime community. Before we go any further, let's get on the same page about what I mean when I say otaku. When I say otaku, I'm not referring to the casual anime fan. I mean otaku as in someone who goes to anime conventions regularly, whose closest friends are the ones they've met at otaku events, someone who loves to cosplay, the kind of person that needs to rent out a storage unit because they have so many figures. That kind of level of anime nerddom. I went to my first anime convention in 2004, and within a couple of years, I started cosplaying. It wasn't long before I started going to every otaku event I could find. I met great people there, and they became my closest friends, because I felt like they accepted me for who I really was. This was a time in my life when I was far from Jesus. I had been hurt deeply by the church. So from about 2007 to 2010, anime conventions and otaku events were my substitute for the church. They were the only place where I felt like I could be myself. Being an otaku became my primary identity, and cosplay became my idol. When I lost my job in 2008, I even became a door girl for a Japanese pop dance club that catered to the otaku community. And once or twice a month, I became my cosplay persona. I derived my self-worth by how well I could make an outfit to match the themes. And I got my validation from the pictures that would make it into the LA Weekly. So when I refer to otaku, I think about who I was during that time before I rededicated my life to Jesus. I think about the people who only have in-person community a handful of times scattered across the year. I think what really drew me into the otaku community was that I was in transition, starting a new career, not happy by the role I had to play at work, and just exhausted by not being able to just be myself. And when we look at the demographics of the otaku community, most are between the ages of 18 and 25. Usually those are years of transition. Most people in that age group are in school or starting their first job. Many people in that age group are stressed out. In fact, young adults aged 18 to 25 years have the highest prevalence of serious mental illness at about 7.5% compared to adults aged 26 to 49 years who are about 5%. Additionally, Young adults aged 18 to 25 are less likely to receive treatment for mental illness. Another really interesting aspect about the demographics of the otaku community 
is that it's got a higher percentage of LGBTQ people than the general population. About 30 to 40% of the otaku community identifies as non-heterosexual. And the most recent statistics estimate that about 4.5% of the U.S. population identifies LGBT. Additionally, surveys indicate that about 10 to 15% of the otaku community identifies as transgender or non-binary, while studies estimate that only 0.6% of the U.S. population identifies as transgender. And as we all know, the church hasn't always done a good job of loving LGBT people, and many have been hurt by the church. The overwhelming feeling of acceptance that people get from the otaku community make anime conventions and other otaku events a sanctuary for people who have these hurts, who have experienced rejection from their family. Otaku often have a sense of loneliness, a sense of being an outsider, of not fitting in. Many have had the experience of being rejected for who they are. I think the sense of loneliness and feeling like an outsider, but then feeling, and then feeling joy and acceptance at anime conventions is illustrated really well in this BuzzFeed video called Why I Cosplay. I was bullied a lot and I never had much self-confidence. I never felt like I was a good enough person. In life, I have low self-esteem. I don't really talk to people. I don't interact with people. In life, I'm what you would say an outsider. Through cosplay, I could become these characters. I could live vicariously with how cool they were. It seems like a lot of people feel the need to become someone else, to strengthen themselves. Why am I doing this? People are going to judge me, probably think I'm a loser or something. I've been to every flea market, every Goodwill, every craft shop, every fashion district every corner of the internet to make this costume. I feel fairly anxious because sometimes you're really not sure how it's going to turn out until you all put it together. And really part of what makes cosplay so beautiful is how people can interpret curves and strange clothing pieces that wouldn't even exist in our world. As I walked down the halls of the convention center, I felt very nervous. People looked at me, but they didn't look at me in a judgmental way. In the cosplay community, there is just so much support and love in such abundance that it's really hard not to feel moved. It's a community where, you're, where they create a safe space for you to just be who you are. 
cosplay really can be for anybody. If you have a passion and a will to bring something you love so dearly that there really is no excuse to not try it out. You're there to just express what you love. What cosplay does is it gives you that confidence and it makes it okay to like things that nobody else does. Opens you up to friendships, to people who love the same stuff that you love. And you don't have to be judged. And that's the greatest thing about cosplay. This is why I cosplay. So what is it about anime that attracts otaku? My theory is that the storytelling comes from a culture that is very lonely and spiritually empty. Japan has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Marriages are declining. The birth rate is negative. People work insane hours and only get three to four hours of sleep. They go to cafe and bars where food and drink are not the only items on the menu. Companionship is what they sell. It's a nation suffering from cultural trauma. And it's not just the unhealthy working culture of today. There's a thought that some of these issues are ripple effects from the persecution of Christianity that lasted 250 years. That was three generations where people had to line up every New Year's Day and publicly renounce Christianity or else them and their family would be executed. You can only imagine that this must have had a profound effect on culture, where the idea is if you believe something to be true, of any kind of truth, you have to suppress it. And you develop the stoic reality of not telling anybody what you believe. If you straight out tell a Japanese person what's important to you, they won't believe it. It's like if you say it, it means it's not important. So the storytelling that comes out of this culture is full of characters searching for purpose, finding community, finding connection. And I think that's where the worldwide popularity of anime comes from. There's that part of the human heart, that God-shaped hole in our heart that is even more highlighted by the stories in anime because of the spiritually dark culture it comes from. Less than 1% of Japan is Christian. How does all of this inform our outreach approach? First of all, what is needed is gratuitous friendship. We need to create a safe space where people feel like they can say anything and not be judged. We need to cultivate authentic relationships. And considering the percentage of LGBTQ people in the anime otaku community, there's a 50-50 chance that when you engage with someone, they will be LGBTQ. In the church, there are two main schools of thought around the LGBTQ issue. You might have heard of them. They're the side A and side B positions. The side A church position is that same-sex marriages are fine. There is theology behind it. They have a theology that supports their position. The side B churches emphasize that your primary identity should be that of follower of Jesus and that identity in Christ supersedes any other identity. 
And that's why the LGBTQ people who go to these churches refer to themselves in different terms. People who go to a side A church will call themselves a gay Christian. And people who go to side B churches refer to themselves as a Christian who is same-sex attracted. LGBTQ people who go to side B churches practice celibacy. And LGBTQ people who go to side A churches are free to marry. You should know your church's position because people will ask you that question about what you believe. And when you enter into those difficult conversations, you should keep in mind that everyone is on a very personal journey and everyone's story is unique. And that we should respect the lived experience of people with different struggles. And ultimately, the most important thing is getting people one step closer to Jesus. As Jesus Otaku, our purpose is to creatively model the love of Jesus to bring otaku and the church together. And so we go to anime conventions and we tell people, God loves you just the way you are. So knowing the answer to the question, who are otaku, is very important when deciding to outreach to the anime otaku community. Knowing the common hurts of otaku helps us inform how we do outreach. Knowing the needs of the community helps us know how we can serve them. I look forward to talking about this with everyone and looking forward to hearing what the otaku community is like where you are. Thank you. We'll be right back after a little bit of music here on LTN Radio with Cecilia's second panel, The Otaku Identity Crisis. Don't go anywhere. This week in Nerdy News, this is LTNN. Marvel has announced a brand new original series coming to Disney Plus called Armor Wars, starring Don Cheadle as James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine. The series will tell the story about Tony Stark's worst fear coming true. What happens when his tech falls into the wrong hands? It better have Justin Hammer in it, that's all I'm saying. If I don't see Sam Rockwell dancing across my screen at least in one of these episodes, I'm gonna get a little upset couple female superhero movie updates. First up, Brie Larson will return as Carol Danvers in Marvel Studios' Captain Marvel 2, directed by Nia DaCosta. And joining the cast will be the recently announced Ms. Marvel, Emin Villani, who will be also featured in her own Disney Plus series. And jumping universes over on the DC side, Wonder Woman 3 has officially been greenlit, and the director Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot are going to be back for the third film. Despite the fact that it seemed to kind of have a wishy-washy release, I mean, I saw it. I liked it. I thought it was good. I mean, there's like a hundred superhero movies now. They can't all be in-game. Give her a break. 
The team at Hacksmith Industries has created a cool pair of self-lacing shoes inspired by the classic Nike mags that Marty McFly wore in Back to the Future Part 2. With these shoes, all you need to do is press the button on the side and the laces tighten. The shoes aren't perfect as they do have some exposed electronics, so you might not want to go jumping into puddles just yet. Regardless, they're still pretty cool and might be a harbinger of, you know, something like this commercially available in the future. Hmm? And in more movie news, yes, I know there's a lot of it. COVID's going away. Give me a break. The Flash is going to start production in April of 2021. Of course, we've already heard that Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton are both joining the movie as different versions of Batman. The multiverse is coming, and I can't wait, but Grant Gustin better be in that one scene from the other crisis. Don't screw this up, DC. That's going to do it for this week in Nerdy News. I'm Radio Matt, and this is LTNN. Welcome back to this LTN Con 2020 special where we are taking a look at all things otaku with Cecilia Rose from the Jesus Otaku Outreach at Saddleback Church in California. Last hour we talked about who the otaku are and in this hour we're talking about the otaku identity crisis. Hello everyone. Welcome to a discussion on the otaku identity crisis. My name is Cecilia, and I'm the founder of Jesus Otaku, an anime outreach ministry out of Salback Church in Southern California. Our purpose is to creatively model the love of Jesus to bring otaku and the church together. Before we start, I want to let you know that we will be covering some heavy topics. You're going to hear some testimonies involving gender dysphoria, um, and I ask that you please do not use these testimonies as talking points in any discussion with a transgendered or non-binary person. Everyone's experience is unique. And so we need to listen with compassion and love unconditionally. Um, since Jesus Otaku was founded in around 2013, we have um, learned a lot about the otaku identity crisis which is to say um, where identity is primarily based around identity as an otaku or as identity as a cosplayer. And we've had to navigate some of, of the things that surround that. In a study um, exploring how people would rate their personalities, it was found that having cosplayers rate their personality in and out of costume could lead to different results. Cosplay is powerful. Uh, we get to dress up and connect with the characters that we love, that we identify with. Um, we get to connect with other fans. It's this amazing performative art. Uh, but there is a subtle, a subtle temptation that we may not recognize. This discussion is just as much for uh, Christians cosplaying as it is for how to understand the cosplayers you interact with in your outreach. There is a subtle temptation of cosplay. It is the fact that you can feel known without actually 
being known. So think about it. You dress up as a character um, that you may feel like you connect with on some level. You like them. Maybe they're the idealized version of yourself. You go to an anime convention, and then people call you by that character's name and react to you with the same love as they have for the character. And you are stepping into that relationship that person has with that fictional character. Um, and so therefore you, you feel known without being known. And you go throughout the convention, but no one ever calls you by your name. They call you by the character's name. And you feel good. You're that character for that day. You're powerful. You're confident. You're beautiful. You're amazing. And people tell you that. And then the convention ends. And you take off the costume. You go back to your life. You go back to your relationships. Or your lack thereof. And people don't treat you like they did at the convention. How could they? The people at the convention were treating you like the character that you were cosplaying. Cosplay is awesome, but this is, this is a side of it that we don't talk about. Um, where it becomes an idol and people derive self-worth from their cosplay. Uh, they base their identity around their cosplay. And thinking about how infrequently conventions happen and how there's this suspended community where you only get community two or three days, maybe twice a year. It's, it's heartbreaking. Today we're going to hear some testimonies. The first one is going to be from my little sister, Megan. I'm just so happy that she could join us today and share her testimony about how cosplay has impacted her life. Hi, Meg. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So um, you're here today to talk a little bit about your experiences as a cosplayer. Uh, how old were you when you started cosplaying? So my first cosplay, I think I was 14 years old. I cosplayed Maylin from Cardcaptor Sakura. What was it like the first time you cosplayed at the convention? Cosplay was like a challenging creative outlet. Like at the time, I asked my mom for help and she was like, no, that's too hard. You can't do it. So it became more of like a challenge. Like I am taking this on. I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure this out on my own. And that whole process of like trying to figure out how to do things was really fun. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, cosplaying a character that, that I admire or like I relate to, it could definitely inspire confidence. Um, and then dressing up in just something cool looking, you know, that you wouldn't normally wear is just fun. Why did you pick Maylin? It was doable. Like, I didn't really know what I was doing with cosplay, so her outfit seemed, seemed feasible. And she had the same hair color that I have, so it was, like, easier that way. Um, and she's just, like, a spunky, fun character. So did you feel like you related to her character? It just felt more, like, feasible <laughs> to cosplay Maylin, and then she also wasn't as commonly cosplayed. So I felt like I could stand out a little bit more. So when you say you wanted to stand out a bit more, 
Um, can you talk more about that and how did that influence you as you continued to cosplay? Yeah, there were definitely times when, you know, it became a little less about like, oh, finding a character that I really like and relate to and admire and think is cool. It, it was also like my decisions were very practical. Like, can I actually make this? Is, you know, will this, does this character kind of match what I look like? Um, are there going to be a lot of other people also dressed as the same character? I wanted to stand out as like this, not as popular character, but everybody knew who they were. So what other characters have you cosplayed? After Maylin, I cosplayed Uduru from Bleach, who was like super, super minor character. Um, but Bleach was really, really popular. So I thought, well, you know, this character matches my body type and everyone knows who she is, but people are probably not going to cosplay her. And then I also cosplayed Hatsuharu from Brute's Basket. I think the next cosplay I did was Kasumi from Mass Effect. I started cosplaying when I was really young, but I haven't really done it regularly. What do you think is the best thing about cosplay and the worst thing about cosplay? I think that some of the best things about cosplay is just that it's fun. You know, it's, it's it creative challenge and you can connect with fellow fans really easily. But the worst thing is definitely um, the way people judge and the way that they just make thoughtless and insensitive comments. People who make mean comments have insecurities themselves and they, they try to cover it up by by saying mean things about other people. It's sad and unfortunate, but what we really need to do is have compassion and forgive them. And I really like what Phil Mizuno said when he did his panel for Anime Expo Light. You know, he did like a Q&A with Yaya Han and they were asked, you know, what do you do about all the haters? And, and he talked about that, that, you know, those people who say mean things, they are hurting themselves. He tries to respond to them with kindness. And he'll look at their profiles or something, and he will try to find something nice to say to them. And I thought that was really inspiring and amazing, you know, because it's so easy to just write people off and say, like, you know, just, just ignore them. Don't even bother with them. You know, don't feed the trolls. Um, but taking the effort to go and, and show love and, and kindness and forgiveness to people, I think is really, really powerful. I mean, I don't even know what his faith background looks like, but it's, it's a very godly thing to do. Looking back, how do you think cosplay impacted your sense of identity? Like most teens, I definitely had a lot of insecurities about myself, about my body. Um, I'm very petite, and even now, you know, I still struggle with feeling like I just, I can't cosplay certain characters because, you know, I'm, I'm not curvy enough, I'm not tall enough, I'm not whatever enough. Um, and that sucks. But with Fruits Basket, the, the remake airing right now, I kind of was reminded a little bit more of, like, what headspace what I was in at that time. I actually really related 
to another character in Fruits Basket, incidentally, Atsuhara's girlfriend. Um, I really related with her backstory, um, but I didn't feel like I could cosplay her because she is more curvy than I am. And nobody would recognize me because she's got really normal clothes. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I could just, I could just cosplay Haru. You know, I'll just, it's, it's easy for me to pass as a guy character. I, I felt like, oh, I could, I could kind of go down that route of just cross-playing all the time because it's easy for me. Um, or I could just lean into that, that idea of I'm the small, cute one. Um, which I, I ended up getting into Lolita fashion, um, which really played into that idea. Looking back, I think if I had continued down that route of cross-playing, then it definitely would have affected my perception of gender. Thank you for sharing. Other than people, you know, out external judging, do you feel like there's a lot going on internally as well? Even as I was kind of recounting my own experience, I told myself I couldn't cosplay. I, I had in my mind that it's just, there's, there's no question I cannot cosplay certain characters because my body type doesn't match theirs. And I don't want to embarrass myself or I don't want to put myself out there to be susceptible to people making mean comments about me. Have you, have you had a mean comment made about you um, yeah. in cosplay? Yeah, I have. Um, the last cosplay that I really felt the joy of creating um, was Kasumi from Mass Effect. I put in so much effort into this costume. It's really hard to wear, too. Um, and I wore it a couple times. And the last time I wore it um, was at WonderCon. After the event, looking up to see like if anyone posted photos of my, my cosplay. And one of the comments that I saw was that someone said that I look like a man. And that just was so hurtful that I never wore it again. Oh, and I, you know, now I'm realizing upon reflecting that it it really took a lot of the joy of cosplaying away for me. Now that I've, you know, done all this self-reflection and kind of worked on processing all these feelings that I have, I, I want to regain that, that joy that I had. I'm so sorry you went through that. Virtual hugs. Do you think there is a trade-off to being a better cosplayer? Being a better cosplayer, I think, can very easily turn into rejecting our desires or, you know, the way that, our, that we're made by God um, in favor of leveraging what will be viewed as more accurate or more popular. You know, cosplay is, is at its core, it's a fun hobby, it's a creative outlet, but it can so easily get bogged down by, um, by our own perceptions of ourselves, or that fear and of, of other people's perceptions. Um, and you know, while I am kind of more at peace with accepting who I am and how God made me to be, I, I still struggle with it. I mean, it, it's something that I think will never totally go away. And I realized that because of those hurts that I experienced, I, I haven't 
really fully enjoyed creating cosplay or cosplaying the way that I used to when I first started. And that's really sad. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of created all these excuses like, oh, I'm busy or I can't because of work. But it, it really wasn't because of those things. It was because of uh, fear, fear of getting hurt again. And I don't like that. You know, I don't, I don't want to let other people, well, I don't even know, have that kind of control over me. So what do you think are some of the common hurts of cosplayers? Body image insecurities, um, and that ties into gender identity. I think it's very easy in particular for women to reject themselves, how God made them, in favor of crossplay. I consciously thought about that as a teenager, that I could maybe, if I chose to, I could be praised as cosplaying a pretty boy more than, rather than being judged for not being enough for cosplaying a female character. What do you think that we should do as Christians to show love towards cosplayers and serve their needs? Recognizing everyone that you can and acknowledging them, you know, no matter what their cosplay looks like. Like if you're at a booth and people are coming up, I mean, just, just acknowledging that people are in cosplay, um, I think it really can go very far, you know, or, or just engaging with them, even if you don't know who they're cosplaying, have that conversation and, and connect with them. See them for who they are, not mm -hmm. what they're dressed as. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you'd want to say to um, Christians who are either getting into cosplay to do outreach or just outreaching and engaging with cosplayers? Like any advice? I think for people who are getting into cosplay, uh, definitely prayerfully consider throughout the whole process who it is that you want to cosplay and why, um, and just really do those heart checks with God to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons, or you're choosing the, that to cosplay that character for the right reasons. You know, like I said earlier, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with cosplay. There's nothing inherently wrong with crossplay. Um, it's when it's damaging for our souls, I want to say, that it is problematic. You know, it, it's just like, there's nothing inherently wrong with alcohol, but some people are more susceptible to being alcoholic, so they just need to, like, flat out avoid it. But, you know, other people, they, they can have a drink or two here and then, and, and I think that same, like, approach applies to everything um, in life, including cosplay. Wow, good advice. Thank you so much um, for sharing your cosplay testimony with us today. Um, and we'll do cosplay together in the future. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me and including me in, in, this, in this panel. I feel like being able to kind of self-reflect on all these topics and feelings was very much a healing process for me. So. I really appreciate it. 
Um, I hope that my story is able to help other people. And if anyone has any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or something. <laughs> the next person we're going to hear from is Becca, who I've known since she was 15. Her experiences are so valuable for people who want to do outreach in the otaku community. Hi, Becca. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So how old were you when you first started cosplaying and who was your first character that you cosplayed? I believe 15, 14 or 15. And it was actually uh, Kyoya from Fruits Basket. What made you decide to cosplay Kyoya? I decided on Kyoya because it was a lot harder to make the female costume for Fruits Basket because I wanted to cosplay Toru. And Kyoya was my second favorite uh, character. So when you say that uh, Toru was hard to cosplay, mm-hmm. what, what made Toru harder to cosplay? Um, materials, honestly. Mm. Um, I really did enjoy Toru as a character because she was so strong and so kind. And, but there was still deep hurt in her, so I really related to her. Uh, I also related to Kyo because... Um, he had a lot of hurt in his family life, as well as me at the time. And so it was easy to relate to him in that way as well. And plus, I just thought he was cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good reason. What other characters have you cosplayed? Uh, Hinata from Naruto. I've done some steampunk Lolita with you and Megan. Um, I've done some more Lolita just because I thought the style was cute. A lot of characters from Naruto, um, I'm a big fan of that, and that was like my main fandom growing up. So we lost touch when you got married mm-hmm. um, for a few years. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that time of your life? During that time of my life, I was married for about four years. And during that time, I had a lot of um, issues with identity because uh, my ex was verbally abusive and talked a lot about how I was too tall and too wide and this and that. I was very manly and so I should only cosplay manly characters. Uh, There was a lot that went on with that that kind of threw me into a feeling of being able to hide in my male cosplays. So as you started cosplaying more and as the years went by, you felt like you could only cosplay male characters? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's definitely that. Because again, I grew up also struggling with same-sex attraction. So I'd be considered bisexual like a men and women. Um, That's a whole other story. But so when I did cosplay as guys and I got that same positive reaction from the girls around that I wasn't getting from my husband, it was confirming, it felt good. And so I slowly kept slipping into more masculine traits and uh, barring myself from wanting to feel feminine. So fast forward to 2014, mm-hmm. we haven't seen each other a few years. Um, and I, Jesus Otaku has started and I invite you to go hang out with Jesus Otaku. <laughs> what? <laughs> Talk about that for a bit. <laughs> uh, so that first time I met you guys, I was just coming out of the divorce um, with a lot of bad stuff happening. And I was not okay with the church. 
And so I thought, hey, she wants me to meet her church friends. I'm going to show them. And I put on bright red contacts and a bright pink wig. Lighter than this, but still bright. And I went in being like, ha, huh, watch them accept me now. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, where did you get your contacts? Where did you get your wig? You look so cool. And my brain was just like, what? No, this, this isn't how church people work. And you wound up coming with Jesus Otaku to an anime convention. Yes. And you brought two cosplays. Mm-hmm. I, I came with Megan, actually, because I wasn't sure if I really wanted to be in the church again. And so I came with her as an assistant. And so I had brought two cosplays. I brought a gender-bent uh, Nagisa from Free. And I really just wanted to wear my Kabuto cosplay because at that point, my male cosplays were my safety blanket. But you and Megan encouraged me to wear my, my female cosplay. And I wore it. Three people had said how good it looked and how cute I looked. And it felt, again, confirming. It felt like, oh, I'm okay to wear this kind of stuff. I can be feminine. I can be cute. I can be sweet. What was it that made you think that you couldn't cosplay certain female characters? I'm almost six feet tall and I'm very broad. Uh, and I tended to struggle from a young age with body dysmorphia, which made me feel even bigger than I actually was. And when you see an female anime characters, they're all very cute and small and petite and tiny. And I wanted to be that so badly, and I knew I couldn't. So did you um, feel a fear of being rejected if you tried to cosplay those yes. female characters? Yes, because I actually had been a couple times that I'm not skinny enough or I'm not short enough or I'm not small chested enough. Did people actually say that to you? Yeah, one of them being my best friend and my now ex-husband. That must have been really painful. It was, and it's still something I'm um, learning to deal with today. Recently you told me about how um, someone suggested you cosplay a certain character from Critical yeah. Role. Yeah, it was Yasha. Um, Yasha is a barbarian. She's strong and beautiful. But all my brain went to was tall, broad, and barbarian. And in my mind, it, it triggered those feelings of dysphoria, feeling too big. When you met Jesus Otaku, mm -hmm. you had pretty much rejected your feminine gender identity. Mm -hmm. What was it um, about Jesus Otaku that helped you feel comfortable re-exploring that side of yourself? was actually the ladies themselves because no one ever made me feel like I had to be feminine. They helped me celebrate who I was. Not feminine nor masculine, but me. Um, they helped me explore the fact that just because I was tall didn't mean I wasn't beautiful. The guys, in a way, helped me feel comfortable expressing my femininity, whereas the girls helped me build that up in a way that wasn't toxic. Can you describe like how it feels to be in cosplay and then get complimented? It's, it's a high. It's a hit of um, good brain chemicals. <laughs> Being able to be complimented for all that work is good, but then it also feeds into the, I look cool, I look awesome, and it is, it's almost like a high. And I can tell you right now, sometimes when I would put a lot of work into something and got little to no recognition for it, it hurt because it was my art on my body. 
and it sucked. <laughs> so it felt like more of a personal thing, and it really wasn't. Do you think there are things that people sacrifice to become a better cosplayer and not realize it? Yes. There was a time when I got really sick and lost a ton of weight, and I was desperate to keep off that weight. And so I started eating unhealthily because I'm like, oh, if I do this, I'll look better in cosplay. Or it's even on the emotional side as if uh, I'm going to cosplay more popular characters because they're going to get more attention rather than cosplaying the characters that you really um, look up to or identify with in a healthier way. So some, some of the bad things are uh, you can be put yourself under a time crunch to get things ready and you can actually lose yourself in that character. A lot of their personality traits can seep into your life and take you over instead of you exploring your own personality. Because for me, I started at a young age, so that's kind of what happened with me as well. Some of the good things are is you have a community and people that will rally around you and love on you. And that's an amazing thing. Um, other things is it brings out your creativity. It brings out skills you never knew you had, like making weapons or sewing clothes. And th those are things that can actually help in the long run. What do you think are some common hurts in the cosplay community? Being rejected by family and friends, not purely because of cosplay, but just everyday things. And so we go to conventions to find that community and connection. But we also get that loss once we come home. So it, it deepens that hurt a little bit. Um, another big hurt is not knowing who we really are and trying to find ourselves within this series. What do you think that we as Christians should do to show love and serve the cosplay community? The biggest thing that helped me was people listening to my story and not trying to change me, but just putting love in my life so I felt free enough to change myself. That's... A tricky one because everyone has their own hurts. Um, one thing is don't point out anything that's inaccurate to the cosplay because some people don't either have the money or the time. What are some things to keep in mind to avoid possibly triggering an like an emotional hurt that someone a cosplayer might have? So trying to stay away from inaccuracies and just complimenting the hard work you can see that they put into it is always good. That's good. Um, is there <laughs> anything that you would want to say to either Christians who are just getting into cosplay or, or Christians who are using cosplay in their outreach or who are interacting with cosplayers? Yes. Enjoy what you do. <laughs> because when you enjoy what you're doing, other cosplayers, even outside the Christian community can see that and they're drawn to that and that that's what makes them want to come talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing today, Becca. Originally, I had planned to share a little bit of my testimony as well, but we're running short on time. But these stories are not unique. Um, I went through my own struggles uh, with identity and cosplay and using my cosplay persona as a crutch uh, for confidence. Some things that we can do as we outreach towards the cosplay community are to compliment people when they're out of cosplay. Uh, one really big thing that you can do at conventions to acknowledge a person is to ask them what their name is. 
Thank you so much for joining this discussion. I look forward to the conversations we'll be having. Now, don't go anywhere. We've got one more keynote from LTNCon 2020 from Cecilia Rose, this time focusing on the mental health of the otaku community and how you can help. We're going to take a quick music break here on LTN Radio, and then we'll be back, so stick around. Mo from the Back Row Morning Show, and I've got your five random facts. There are 256 levels to the original Pac-Man arcade game, but shortly after the 256th level starts, the game glitches and the entire right side of the game becomes text. Humans are the only animals that blush. We are also believed to be the only animal that feels embarrassment. The hottest spot ever recorded on Earth is El Aziza in Libya, where a temperature of 136 degrees Fahrenheit was recorded on September 13, 1922. Your nostrils work one at a time. When we breathe in and out of our nose during the day, one nostril does most of the work at a time, with the duty switching every several hours. And lastly, Peter Jackson, director of Lord of the Rings trilogy, wants to direct an episode of Doctor Who, going as far as to discuss the possibility with showrunner Stephen Moffat. His only request is that he be paid with one gold Dalek prop. For more random facts and hilarious nonsense, tune in to the Back Row Morning Show Monday through Thursday at 7 a.m. Central with an encore at 9. Welcome back to this LTNCon 2020 special event where we're bringing you every keynote from Cecilia Rose, head of the Otaku Outreach at Saddleback Church in California. We've learned who the Otaku are. We even heard a fantastic testimony from someone in the community. And now, how to care for the mental health of those in the Otaku community. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this discussion about caring for the mental health of the otaku community. My name is Cecilia, and I'm the founder of Jesus Otaku, an anime outreach ministry out of Saddleback Church in Southern California. In an age where the internet connects us like never before, loneliness has become an epidemic. The explosive growth of fandom conventions in the last 10 years is an expression of this problem. The Wall Street Journal described it as the physical manifestation of an obsessiveness spread by the internet. Sadly, experiencing these events only a handful of days scattered over the course of a year leads many to experience hopelessness and despair. Risk factors for depression and suicide appear at an alarmingly high rate amongst otaku. Nationally, the second leading cause of death after unintentional injury for people aged 10 to 34 is suicide. The median age of the otaku community is about 18 years old. In Southern California, 60% of anime convention attendees are aged 13 to 24. Also, anime fans tend to isolate themselves, being more likely than not to conceal their fandom identity to others outside their family. Otaku have experienced bullying at three times the national average. 
Otaku are six to eight times more likely than the general population to identify as non-heterosexual. And sadly, attempted suicide rates and suicidal ideation amongst LGBT youth are significantly higher than the general population. Escapism is definitely a theme in the otaku community. One indicator is the popularity of the isekai genre. Isekai storytelling is about an ordinary person who gets transported into a fantasy world. The main characters of these stories are usually overwhelmed by work or school responsibilities, personal relationships, they're stressed out, and their life in this world is not great. In the last few years, the isekai genre has been gaining massive popularity and has been dominating the manga and light novel storylines. Cosplay also has an element of escapism. Surveys indicate that is one of the primary reasons that motivate people to cosplay. So recognizing the fact that depression, mental illness is an issue in the otaku community, how do we respond? Saddleback's Hope for Mental Health Ministry extends the radical friendship of Jesus by providing transforming love, support, and hope through the local church. The heart of this ministry comes from three passages of scripture. I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my Father I have made known to you. John 15, 15. Serve one another in love. Galatians 5, 13b. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. These five life-transforming scriptural truths shape Saddleback's approach to mental health ministry and are illustrated in the Hope Circle. Each truth combats a negative message that holds people back from moving towards hope. Coincidentally, You Are Loved correlates to our first art book devotional, which the theme was You Are Loved Just As You Are, and we're currently in the process of drafting our second, a second art book devotional. We got really excited when we saw the Hope Circle because we had coincidentally already touched on two of the five themes. And in the future, perhaps we'll touch on the rest of them. The acrostic for the, church, for the strategy is C-H-U-R-C-H. C stands for care for people living with mental illness and their families. Um, this means making the deliberate decision to become a compassionate sanctuary for people living with mental illness. People with, living with mental illness often feel excluded, and their suffering is compounded when they feel excluded from the warmth of the fellowship of the body of Christ. The church must be a place that extends radical friendship and love. The H stands for help with the basic needs of people living with mental illness and their families. We have a mandate from God to care for the physical, spiritual, and emotional needs of people. This means being intentional about ministering to people living with mental illness in tangible ways. Meeting practical needs does not need to cost money. Acts of service will speak volumes to people who often feel lonely and forgotten. 
U stands for utilize volunteers. There will never be enough mental health professionals to offer care, treatment, and support to people who need it. Every church can train and mobilize members to become a safe place to effectively care for and help people living with mental illness. And these things are really practical. Just having people familiar with resources like the suicide hotline and the crisis text line, doing a Bible study on hospitality, practicing active listening and empathy, uh, praying for the community, sending cards, assembling care packages, all these things are, are practical, low-cost things that we can do to serve the needs of people struggling with mental illness. The R stands for remove the stigma surrounding mental illness. The stigma surrounding mental illness is deeply ingrained in our culture and even the church. One of the most powerful gifts the church can give to people with mental illness is accepting them as equal members of Christ's body worthy of respect, and honored as fully integrated contributors to the life of the church. C stands for collaborate with the community. The church is a necessary part of holistic care, but it can't do it all. Churches can build a resource list of mental health professionals, treatment programs, food banks, housing referrals, legal aid clinics, hospitals, and job training to people who are in a time of crisis, um, or who are in a mental health emergency. And finally, the H in the church strategy acrostic stands for offer hope. It is the responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ to offer hope. Through the promises of God, we know how to offer hope, not only for this life, but the life to come. We know how to share these fundamental truths that can lead hurting people towards hope. Telling people, you are loved, you have a purpose, you belong, you have a choice, and you are needed. Taking our cues from Saddleback's model for mental health ministry, Jesus Otaku has created a strategic engagement model where we are always providing a next step towards deeper community. Our first contact with most of our outreach contacts in the otaku community comes from our booths at Anime Expo and Crunchyroll Expo. There, we give out our art book devotionals, our stickers, and we have a Tanabata where we receive prayer requests. Engagement here is at its shallowest level because the conversations are usually very short because everyone's running around the convention and they're very busy, but they pick up some of our materials, they get our contact information, and hopefully they follow us on our social media. From there, we have relational touch points and community events that we hope will lead to meaningful conversations. Before COVID happened, this looked like having monthly meetups, cosplay workshops at the church, um, hanging out at local anime conventions, just finding ways to connect with people outside of conventions. Since the pandemic, all of our events are virtual. We have a virtual cosplay hangout and we have a virtual cosplay workshop 
has turned into a virtual workshop for anything you happen to be working on. Through these events, we start to build more meaningful relationships. And the next level of community we have in our strategic engagement process is our Discord. In our Discord server, we have weekly streams of online service. Our goal is for our Discord server to be a safe space for conversations about faith, a place where we cultivate meaningful community. Also on our Discord server, we host our online small groups, weekly meetings where people can develop healthy relationships and promote personal growth. There are all sorts of ways to do outreach. One method is not necessarily better than another. As I mentioned before, our interactions at the conventions tend to be brief and shallow. That doesn't mean it doesn't plant seeds. But when it comes to really caring for the emotional health of the otaku community, what's needed is being willing to invest in relationship, forming those authentic friendships. Taking the time to really get to know people that you meet at conventions, it's not an easy thing. It will require you to go outside of your comfort zone. It will require a significant investment of time and emotional energy to form these relationships. But the investment is worth it. There is a definite need in the otaku community for these authentic relationships. Thank you again so much for tuning into this panel. I look forward to our discussions on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us here for the LTN Con 2020 special focused on the otaku community. Thank you to Cecilia Rose for everything that she did for LTN Con 2020 this past October. And hey, there, there should be another LTN Con rolling around next October. So why don't you start making plans for that now? Because you know what? It was a blast this last year, and I can imagine it's only going to get better from here. Jesus loves you, nerds.